Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Robert Francis Kennedy once said, Progress is a nice word, but change is its motivator, and change has its enemies. It's been a common theme on this podcast for the last almost year now that it started and progressed with the idea of bringing new views and fresh thoughts, primarily on economics, but really on the thread that finances weave throughout our lives to my listeners, to my clients. And as I've been on this journey now for almost three years, it's really steered me away from what I really think are limiting views that are promoted by a lot of the big wealth firms in this country and overseas as well. I get material every day as a financial advisor, and it's the usual stuff. It it doesn't change. When the markets are down, it's the average length of a recession, hard landing, soft landing. And of course, this obsession with what the Fed's going to do, the pivot, and and even some cases, what quarter-end window dressing, as it's called, how that'll affect a portfolio. It's a very limiting and short-sighted view, in my opinion. And so I've been fortunate to establish relationships with economists, many overseas, who aren't beholden to companies or product requirements are actually able to express their views honestly without really being controlled by the fear of losing some kind of a revenue stream. And so that's been good. And then these individuals, some will stay still within an economic framework and describe how they see things evolving. Others will branch also into the geopolitical impact of things. To me, that's probably one of the less emphasized components of what we're looking at right now in the world today. And then there are others who take an even broader view and I think dig into what I will call a collective consciousness of a shift that I think many people are feeling. One perfect example of it is this drive to seek out experiences in life. So rather than kind of relying on sort of big box approach to things, a lot of people are seeking to do business with smaller companies who are seeking experiences in their daily life in whatever the endeavors might be, rather than just purely efficiencies, I guess you'd say. And so today's guest is one of those thinkers that I'm fortunate to have run into just recently. His name is Charles Hughes Smith. He's been writing about social, economic, and technology trends since 2005 on his blog called of two minds.com and it currently hosts over 4000 pages of his original content. His work can also be found for subscribers on Patreon and appears on the alternative financial website Zero Hedge which is where I became acquainted with him just last month. Charles seeks to understand why our socio-political and economic systems are failing and to lay out alternative ways to organize more sustainable ways of living. His work does not fit into any ideological box. In fact, he views all ideologies as obsolete and misleading and I have to say I'm 100% in agreement with him on that. Charles has written 16 books. The most recent was published in 2022, and it's titled Self-Reliance in the 21st Century. Charles is keenly interested in the role of new technologies, including blockchain, and what role they may play in what he refers to as, quote, a radically beneficial world, end quote. And what he means by that is the emerging system he sees coming that benefits all participants rather than just a few at the top of the wealth power pyramid. When asked what of two minds means, he explains that it has two meanings. One is an open mind to changing his views when presented with new knowledge. And the second is that the blog itself is a result of two minds, his and the collective intelligence of his global readership. 
So it's my pleasure to welcome, coming to us from the big island of Hawaii, Charles Hugh Smith. Aloha, Charles, and thanks for joining me on Upthinking Finance. Well, thank you, Emerson. I'm looking forward to our conversation, which is our first, hopefully, of many. Yeah, agreed. So I guess the first place to start is I'm curious because as I've been on this quest I shared about in the intro about seeking free thinkers relative to economics, but even broader than that, you've been writing for a long time. I mean, 2005, I'm just surprised I haven't run into you before, but I guess you have to be looking. But I guess I'm curious what the inspiration was to start this blog that you have of two minds and kind of how it's evolved over the years, if there's a way to capture that. Yeah, sure. Thank you for the interest. And I think my path started is the of two minds has multiple meanings. One is that I'm rooted both in the philosophy, which is my university degree, both Eastern and Western. And that philosophy, of course, I often mock the whole idea that don't major in philosophy, then you can be an Uber driver or a carpenter. It's kind of like your choice. right? So I became a carpenter. And then I'm rooted in the trades. I was a carpenter, I worked my way through college and then became a builder and built quite a few dozens of houses and some major projects. And so with my partner, and then I kind of exited out of that because I thought, okay, I've done all that. I've done basically everything I can do as a builder. And now I want to be a writer. (laughs) And so I started writing about housing and urban design because I had some expertise in that field already, at least experience, if not expertise. And then once the housing bubble started in 2004, 5, 6, I started writing about that. And then I gained an audience to my great surprise. Once you get into housing bubble, then you get into finance and then you get into the economy and you get into the wealth effect and you get into the whole sphere of socioeconomic, political interaction and dynamics. And so that's how the blog kind of added interest. And I guess the audience developed from there. And so like you, I'm really interested in people who think independently. In other words, they have their own analysis. They don't just repeat what somebody else said and take it as granted. And I think that's where the philosophy helps. And the other part of the of two minds story is it's actually now when people say, well, what's that mean? And I say, well, it's the audience. It's the readers and the correspondents who email me. They have their minds and they're sharing their knowledge and information and critique with me. And then I'm kind of processing that. So there's actually multiple minds, but of two minds gives a flavor of how much I've learned from my audience and my readers. <laughs> and that's part of it. Yeah. No. And this is something I've become recently acquainted with. I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Luongo. It's what you're describing is a community. That's a whole new aspect where people are sharing ideas kind of in real time, I suppose you'd say, through just everybody's own kind of experiences and their exposure to things. It's actually been very exciting for me because I think I shared when I reached out to you is I'm just a product of the financial economic system of big firms with their capital market analysts and their research and things. And all of a sudden it's become, I can't even listen to it because it's so limiting and things. I never had any idea. So I feel fortunate to be meeting people like you. And so I mentioned this article that I found you, which is the first time I've seen your writing, which was just last month that was on Zero Hedge. It's called, Will 2023 Be Just an Average Recession in an Average Year or Will It Be Transformational? I mean, to me, that's the grabbing headline. And so you mentioned in here, and I'll just summarize quickly these two camps, the mainstream that sort of expects that it'll be a mild recession, but just another garden variety recession, and then kind of the small outlier camp, as you referred to it, that sees that this is bigger than that. And I'm really generalizing here, but would you be willing to just elaborate on both those camps and kind of how your views, because I have to imagine as you dug in over the years, 
into this, the economics and the finance world, that there had to be some kind of a process of kind of an enlightenment or an awareness or something that has developed over that period of time. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's a path that many of us take. For me, I think it's very common. In other words, I'm not the only one. I think all of us who come up upon historians in particular, but there can be other analysts who explain the cycles of human civilization that tend to arise and then decline, and these periods of great social, political, economic change. And in the 20th century, of course, there was the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, World War II. And in the U.S., you could say the counterculture and all the civil rights and women's movement, growth of the ecological awareness movement, environmental movement, all these were huge movements that were social, political, and economic. And so those transformational areas are of interest because I think we need that. In other words, I think the system that we have is not sustainable and that it needs a transformation. And so that's been my interest. So we know from recency bias, that's the bias we all have. The recent past is a very good guide to the future. And what's so funny is, as we know, 99% of the time, that's correct, right? The recent past is a good guide to the future. But in transformational areas, that correlation or causation falls away. And the recent past is no longer a guide. It's actually very misleading. And so I think we're in an area where there's this mix, kind of what I would call like kind of a whirlpool or a tides conflicting. And so we've got this tide of easy money, central bank monetization, controlling the economy and the political process. And plenty of resources and low cost for commodities and all this stuff that's been running more or less for either 60 years, 50 years or 40 years. Take your pick. It's been a long trend where we can count on everything stabilizing back to bull market in everything is what I would call it. Yeah. And then in the last 20 years, there's been hyper globalization and hyper financialization, which took these trends that have been present basically for hundreds of years or thousands in the case of globalization, right? Trade between Rome and and India, for example. But these have become hyper-accelerated, and now the system is, in my view, destabilizing. And so there's this emerging trends that are kind of contesting that recency bias. And so the question is, if you look at the recent history and go, oh yeah, sure, it's entirely rational to say we're in the same bull market we've been in for 40 years, and it's just going to run for the next decade. But if you look at other stuff, you're going, no, I think that tide is ebbing. And the tide that's rising is a different tide. We're going to have a transformation of some kind or another. So, gosh, when I was reading your blogs, I thought, how am I going to keep this to like a reasonable amount of time? Because everything you speak of, it covers so much. So, okay, in the finance world, again, from my side of the desk, you don't probably know, but I've been in financial services. The entirety of my career started in 86. And it's been what you described. It's been the gradual lowering of interest rates. And as you said, I think you described it perfectly, particularly in the last, since 2009, I guess you'd say it's been this acceleration. There is a danger, I suppose, is that the word, when people start talking about the current status quo ending, because there's the argument that's every year, it's almost like there's a guy I used to follow, I won't say his name, but he was an advisor coach who talked about apocalypse du jour. And his belief was that there's always some reason why the market's going to collapse, but it's all stocks all the time, kind of a deal, right? So you've got this faction of people, which I think you write in your article is the majority. I mean, I hear it from clients a lot 
Although I will say, I'm also seeing people who, as I've mentioned to you before, what they're seeing and what they're feeling isn't linking. It doesn't align. Whether people understand what it is or not, internally, something's not going together. So how do you, I guess maybe I'm asking, I don't know, hopefully you're discerning something out of this, but where do you show that these signs are effectively that the tide is turning and things are actually shifting? Because it feels like it to me, but how do you explain that to somebody? Yeah, that's really the core here of people like myself who are easily put in a camp of doom and gloom, right? Like, oh, well, if if the status quo changes, then it must mean collapse. And it's all like, okay, well, collapse is one possibility, but that's not the only possible trajectory. There can be decay and renewal. There can be contentious periods of flux that then launch a renaissance. I mean, there's lots of possibilities and history has examples of all of these. So just to say that the status quo is unsustainable doesn't mean that we're all going to be living in tar paper shacks in a dirt field and have nothing. And so the question is, though, is how are we going to deal with the unsustainability of the current system? And so this, of course, leads back to a bunch of analysts, Nate Hagens, Gail Verberg, that look at energy and their basic premise. And there's a lot of strong arguments in my view for this. If you have a science background, in other words, if you understand, to me, high school biology, chemistry, and physics, then you're going to have a pretty good grounding to understand energy. And if you don't have any math, no science, then it's going to be a difficult process because you're going to be swayed by people that don't know anything and that they're claiming things that counter the basic rules of nature, right? I mean, there are limits on physics and chemistry that just saying that, oh, there's no limits where it's limitless. It's all like, no, there's always limits, okay? And there's only so much energy in a chemical bond, et cetera, et cetera. So energy is a limited resource and there's constraints and there's costs associated with every form of energy. And so we've been sort of indulging or in the easy energy that we have with hydrocarbons, right? Which are very concentrated and they're transportable and they have all these wonderful features. And that industry is now so large, it's almost beyond comprehension, as you probably know. In other words, the global hydrocarbon industry is, you can measure it by how many hundreds of billions or how many trillions have been invested and all that stuff. But it's just the physical plant of it is just phenomenal, right? I mean, we have oil wells that go down 10,000 feet below the ocean floor. And and all of this somehow ends up being cheaper than soda. (laughs) And it's all like, that's an incredible system that we tend to take for granted. And so now we're talking about, well, okay, we're going to have a green energy system and so on. But those systems have their own constraints, right? As we say, they're intermittent. And so then what are you going to do when the sun goes down and the wind dies? And so it's not an easy problem to replace hydrocarbons. And yet a lot of people are sort of like ignoring that and saying, oh yeah, sure, it's all going to work out just fine. So there's this whole other school of thought called degrowth, décroissance in French, where it started in Europe, which is like, hey, well, maybe we should have a whole new model for what prosperity and well-being is. And that model would be we use less of energy and less of the materials, and we use less capital and less labor instead of always more, 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 right? Because what the more, more, more has led to is what I call the waste is growth, landfill economy, right? We're wasting stuff, but the way we measure GDP is 
Hey, that's great. A million cars sitting in a traffic jam going nowhere. They're all burning fuel. That's great. We're going to buy more fuel. It's fantastic. That's consumption. It's going up. And it's all like, wait a minute, but that's waste. <laughs> and the landfill economy, a lot of what I think we need to look at is globalization has led to everything becoming disposable. The quality of things has really collapsed. And that's one of the things that if people ask me, well, what do you mean that something's changed? I'd say the, the decline in quality of goods and services is like an enormous decline in well-being and an enormous waste of irreplaceable resources that people just shrug and take for granted. Another one is the moral collapse in the technocracy mindset. There is no morality or and ethics don't count. What counts is that we manage things, we measure things, and we manage what we measure. And morality has no measure. So the corruption that's now endemic in American society, and you could maybe say it's global, that has a consequence that people don't measure, which is the average person starts realizing the system is unfair. And humans are wired, like all primates, to be extremely attuned to the fairness of the system they're in, or the tribe, or the group, or whatever. And so when things start getting unfair, like systemically, then people start becoming upset. They become unhappy and they may not exactly know why. And so a lot of the contentiousness and conflicts I see, it's like because the system's rigged and we all know it's rigged and a lot of the rules and laws that are supposed to protect us are being kind of like shunted aside or watered down, etc. So I think those are two things that occur to me, or let's say I'm three. One is energy is not forever. It's not cheap. It's a big problem, right? And if you have to use less energy, then that takes away the waste is growth landfill economy. Number two, the quality of life, the quality of goods and services is enormous and consequential. And then the collapse of morality, if you will, where anything goes, as long as I'm going to make a killing for myself. And that, of course, people say, oh, well, people have always been greedy. And yeah, yeah, we get it. Okay, we're not arguing that humans are saints. We're saying that the system is supposed to have limits on greed and corruption. And when those limits are not respected or that the system is unable to enforce that and the playing field is no longer level, then you get a system that eventually roads and then collapses from that moral decay. Sorry for that long-winded no, answer. This is exactly what I was hoping for. Thank you. So, okay. So you have this the camp. Let's just start with that. Because one of the questions I had is it sounds like, and I think you may have just said this, is that the root of this transformation is that the inequality, if that's the word, has been stretched about as far as it can go. Is that sort of an underlying cause? Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. And if people say, well, what does that mean? You can say it's the social mobility has declined. In other words, it used to be that pretty much anybody with a high school education and a willingness to work that had a long-term view, in other words, they were willing to make sacrifices to save money and buy a house and that kind of thing, right? Prudence and being able to negotiate a better deal for themselves. These are the sort of values and tools of the middle-class lifestyle, right? Anybody could end up doing pretty well for themselves, especially if they married or had a relationship where there was a two-income household, right? We all go back and go, well, in 1955, one income was enough. Okay, well, that's nice, but that's not reality. For the last 30 years, it's you need two incomes. But it was pretty much uh, the ladder of social mobility was open to most people. And now I think the ladder's rungs have been broken to where what's expected of you to reach the upper middle class is beyond what most people can manage. And so then they give up. And this is why we see this quiet quitting, let it rot, all these laying flat, these terms from China and other nations that have the same problem. And so 
so I think when you say inequality, it's also inequality of opportunity as well as the little guy seems to be paying more and the super rich seem to be paying less. <laughs> no, that's good. And so because I guess then what you've got when you get back to this article that I found you on, these two camps, there's the group that they just they're hanging on because they're the ones that are benefiting. <laughs> the status quo works. But I also think, and tell me if this is right, that there's a faction of people who hang on to the status quo. Maybe this isn't some brilliant wisdom, but because it's just safe. People like worrying that thinking the Fed's going to save the day is an example. I mean, there's comfort in that because what you're talking about, and I'm 100% on board. I mean, I'm feeling it. I've had clients, even ourselves in our life, my wife's a I won't say she's a minimalist, but you know, I've had clients that have had properties here or there, and there's this perceived sense of freedom when you know it's like, well, I can go here if I need to or go here. But what's happening is is people are realizing that it's actually complicating things. And it's and all this stuff and excess, if you want to call it that, is actually a burden. And so there's a shift. So I don't know where the question is in this, but I guess some of these things you're talking about are going to require, at least in my simple words, some kind of huge wake-up call. I mean, I don't think a 20 or 30% drop in the market is even enough. And I know I'm tying it back to finances because there's a spiritual component to this. I think whatever you want that to be. I mean, I listen to you, you sound, there's a detachment and I've read how you measure success. I love this on your biography. It's about friendships and your health and experiences in life, and it's broader. And some of the economists, like, I don't know if you're familiar with Alex Craner, he contributes to Zero Edge from time to time. He's over in Monaco. His thing is, it gets back to buy farmland or have a greenhouse or something you can do to provide for yourself that your wealth, it's not just the money in the bank and how much you have in your mutual fund portfolio. It's much more than that. Peace of mind, a sense, like you said, I mean, when you're describing people, it sounds like there's just a loss of hope. I mean, that's kind of where that I go with that, a loss of hope for a lot of people. So is there an awareness coming? Because this transformation isn't something that's just going to happen in six months. I mean, it's a complete almost overhaul of the whole system, religion, all of it. You talk about these ideologies and status quo. I mean, it's pervasive everywhere. There's money and benefit in keeping things the way it is. I know, I'm sorry, I went off on a rant, but <laughs> I need you to sift through all this and help explain it to me, Charles, if you can. Well, I think you did a good job of summarizing it, that it's a personal, like it's at the household level, but it's at the community level, and then it's at the county and state and national and global. There's a term for it, scale invariant, right? Meaning that these dynamics that we're discussing work at every scale, from the individual household all the way up to the global economy. And that's why they're interesting, right? Because we're part of that system. And of course, thrilled that your first name is Emerson, because I just wrote a book called Self-Reliance in the 21st Century that was building on the American philosopher Emerson's work and his essay from 1842 or something, that self-reliance. And he was talking about self-reliance in the sense of thinking for yourself. And you trust your own intuition and your own judgment and make your own way in life. No copy somebody else or just do the conventional stuff because that's what people expect, right? And so the point of that I wanted to make in my book was kind of referencing your contact in Monaco is he took all the tools of self-reliance in the real world for granted because everybody was self-reliant then. Now we we depend on corporations and the government to provide everything for us. Like our solution to everything is shopping. 
And so any solution that's presented in the media is a profit center, like somebody wants you to go buy something, right? And so you get these magazines like Real Simple, and it's like uh, this catalog of stuff you're supposed to buy to become more simple. It's like, okay, wait a minute. And I don't mean to rag on that magazine particularly, but it's just that it's emblematic of the whole idea that the way to simplify and become self-reliant is to buy more stuff. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about skill sets that you learn from experience and the connections you make with other productive people. That's like self-reliance. I'm thinking for yourself too, of course. And I'll tell you what, as scary as that can be, because I mentioned my friend in Monaco, I may have shared with you when I emailed you the first time about this trend model that we built. Whether you agree with the philosophy or not, it definitely goes against mainstream money management because you're eliminating economists, you're eliminating an analyst. These are a lot of jobs and therefore management fees you're cutting out for an algorithmic model that's just doing basically technical analysis if you want to boil it down. And I had to fight to get it in place and to keep it because the underlying investments and things that are used with that were going to be shelved by a lot of firms and have been. But yet there's a freedom. In one hand, it's a risk. But once you start, you go over that kind of that edge and go out and start investigating for yourself, like you said, it's exciting. All of a sudden, I've enjoyed my work more in the last two and a half years than I have since when I started this company in 1995. It's been exhilarating. I'm meeting interesting people. I'm getting new thoughts to try to take that, sort of apply it to clients' portfolios and their lives. My wife talks a lot about building a skill. My son was homeschooled. Going to get a college degree, just going to offend a lot of people, to me is meaningless at this point. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, I read econ class and I read the book and I mean, it's all the stuff that sounds good in theory, but as you know, real life is completely different because you're dealing with people who aren't predictable, but he's flying, he's learning to get a pilot's license. And I think I read somewhere once, you call that human capital, or there's a term for that. A lot of people call me and say, Gee, Emerson, I'm afraid I'm, the world's coming to an end. You have a word for that. There's an acronym, but it's like, I think I want to buy gold. And my response is really what you ought to do is beef up some food storage. That's where you're going to get peace and security and self-reliance. And so, like I said, you just put all these thoughts in my mind, but in your opinion, where do you see kind of where we are now and how this transformation manifests itself? Because I like what you said in the beginning. It's not like we keep going along with the system in place or the whole thing falls off. Extremes don't make sense to me. There's somewhere in that middle there is kind of a path that probably most people don't see, including myself. Are you comfortable if I ask you to kind of articulate sort of your thoughts as broad or as narrow as they might be to, or specific, I should say? Yeah. And I think what I was very excited to have your questions and your open-mindedness, which is, as you say, is pretty rare. And I try to stay open-minded and realize I can be wrong. Like I don't really claim that much expertise because you get hardened, right? You start clinging to things and not questioning them. So I consider myself a learner, not an expert. And so I want to refer back to our emails when we were first introducing each other. What I found really interesting was your interest in social transformations. In other words, we can analyze and measure finance, right? That's pretty easy, like profits, revenues, costs, right? But how do you measure the social changes underneath the economy or go hand in hand? That's hard to quantify, right? We can do surveys and stuff like that. It's a little squishier. And the same with politics, right? Like we can measure like, well, 
how much do you hate the opposing party or whatever? And then we say, oh, well, the social discord is increasing or whatever. But that doesn't really tell us much, right? And so I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand the dynamics in ways that explain it in causality and correlation, right? That we can say, okay, this dynamic is going to create these consequences. And then those consequences will have consequences, first order effects, second order effects. In other words, try to break it down as a system. So we sort of scrape away emotions and the ideologies and all that stuff. And so I consider myself a learner of systems thinking. And I think that's what you're referring to. If I had to say, what is your investment strategy based on? I'd say he's a systems thinker because he's not going to limit the inputs to like one little field. Finance includes all these different inputs and they can be overwhelming. And so we use technical or quantitative analysis to try to boil it down to a few dynamics that we can actually track, right? And try to understand. So I think in the transformation, a lot of people use these terms like looking at constraints. And so if you look at the constraints in your own life and it helps you make good decisions, right? You go, well, I'm, this is all the money I have right at the moment. What can I do with that, right? If you spread it too thin, it's kind of like you're not going to get any concentrated effect, right? But on the other hand, if you have all your eggs in one basket, the eggs break, then you might not be able to recover those losses. So in terms of finance, we look at risk and return, right? But that's a very good platform for analyzing life in general. And so like what I say, and maybe it doesn't make sense to anybody else, but this is how I think of it is each of our lives is a system and it's an enterprise. Now I've been self-employed. I've worked for other people on occasion, but as a general rule, I've been self-employed like you are. And it gives you a completely different mindset. And then you start pondering, read books by Peter Drucker. You read about management and you read about finance and all this stuff. And you try to get as much information as you can from guys who are smarter than you and people that are smarter than you. And then you go, okay, what do I do with this? And you end up saying, okay, I need to understand the risks and make calculated risks in exchange for some return. And you realize you have to embrace insecurity, right? And the unknown, right? That's really what it boils down to. There's no guarantees in life. But if you want to invest in a variety of different asset classes, and of course, as you say, human capital, also called intellectual capital, no one can take that away from you. It can't be expropriated you know, <laughs> or taxed away or whatever. You carry your skills and you carry your social connections, people you care about, people you've contributed something important to their life, people you trust, right? So I'm always talking about trust and integrity as being like the core asset. Everything beyond that is gravy. But you can see that from my point of view, to kind of correlate to your interest in finance, it's like, okay, so we're going to invest in ourselves, right? Like our own intelligence, knowledge, expertise, etc. And those of our kids, as you're doing, then you're going to say, okay, we want a piece of land in a place that has some kind of rule of law. <laughs> That limits things immediately. And then we want to have a place where we feel comfortable with the people around us as being productive and people we can work with. We don't have to agree with them on everything, but we need to be able to work productively with people, right? And not every place has an abundance of people who are productive. A lot of people have become dependent and entitled and they're filled with resentments and indignation and all that stuff. So how can we work productively with that kind of mindset? The truth is you can't. I mean, a little bit of that is okay. Sure, we all want to complain or whatever, but you got to have some kind of vision and 
and the value system to be productive. So you want to be in that kind of place. That's an investment, right? And then you're like, okay, your investment in stuff that's going to benefit you or grow or whatever. And then you can say, well, I could buy solar panels and a battery for my house. Is that a better investment than a mutual fund? Well, that's a good debate to have. Maybe you should have some of each and so on. So I think what I'm looking at is broadening the scope of what is considered an investment away from stuff that you don't really control. If I buy a shares in a corporation, I don't control anything except whether to sell it. I mean, I don't know anything else about it. Whereas if I'm have other investments that I actually manage and control, like my own little enterprise, like your enterprise, that we actually own. We control it. And so I think control of your assets and investments is underappreciated. You know, and that makes sense. And that's probably, I think, gets back to what you said earlier about equal opportunity. Because are you familiar with Carolyn Mice? She's kind of a spiritual... No. Okay. She's really good. It's very similar things to the way you're expressing from a spiritual side, but it's this idea that it's not really necessarily about fairness, because how do you judge that? That gets back to actually the government and corporations providing everything for everybody equally kind of a deal. But what you said about equal opportunity and allowing people to just be whoever they're meant to be and the American dream, right? To literally be able to pursue things without restriction. And I think that's, like you said, I don't see that as available for everybody. And I think that's probably, as you said, I've read when you've written the driver of discontent. So I guess what I'm trying to look at to tie up here is I look at this sometimes and it seems like, yeah, obviously I'm working with a certain segment of the population that's been saved, been responsible, done all the sort of the dues, worked hard and all that, and now are reaping the benefits of it. But there's also a generation that I think has been kind of conditioned to just sort of give up. Like you said, don't see that they have a chance. How does this shift? It just seems like such a monumental problem. And maybe you've answered the question that it is people realizing that I've gotten to a point now where I'm like what you said, I rely on my own discernment. I've really never realized just how powerful my experiences and just my gut, whatever you want to call it, conscience, intuition, that's an asset of the portfolio for sure. I know I'm asking, that's like the million dollar question, but how does that transition start? How do we get to that place? Is there a starting point? I guess I'm looking for the silver bullet, Charles. (laughs) How do we get there? Well, yeah. And what's so fascinating about that question, Emerson, is we look to the recent past, like how did the Soviet Union collapse? I mean, I've read books about it, right? And I've tried to understand it, but it's not really completely predictable. That kind of social change that also has this economic and political stuff. And The same thing is true of the counterculture, which I think people in the 70s, which predates your professional career a little bit, but that was a period of tremendous turmoil from the mid-60s, say, up through the 70s. And a lot of good things happened, actually. Like I said, we institutionalized civil liberties and we invested trillions of dollars in today's money redoing the industrial base of the United States. In other words, we had to replace a lot of really inefficient energy, inefficient industries that polluted, that created a lot of pollution, and we had to redo that whole system. And that's why the 70s was stagflation, was we were investing hugely, huge sums of money went into these good things that did not pay any return in the next quarter. It took a decade. And so just like with fossil fuels, like all the discoveries in the late 60s, they didn't come online until like the early 80s. And then we were awash in oil, the North Sea and Alaska and all that stuff. So some things you have to invest in for a long time before there's a payoff. So that's one thing. It's like, where does it start? Is you got to start investing in reducing barriers, not adding barriers. I know we're pressing up against the time limit, but we're both entrepreneurs. We both have our own enterprise. Imagine 
imagine how easy it was 40 years ago or 30 years ago to become a mechanic or open a hair salon or whatever. And now compare it. It's all like, oh my gosh, you have to be a hat. You have to be an attorney. You have to be a psychologist. You've got to be an expert in regulatory burdens. It's like, it's not easy to be on your own anymore. And I think that's suppressed innovation and opportunity. So where we start, we have to start breaking down stuff. Instead of there being 12 regulatory agencies before you can do anything, it has to be consolidated into one. But see, that's not the way bureaucracies and hierarchies work. My power is from being able to say no to you. That's my power. Saying yes, that's lost in the shuffle. But if I can say no, well, then you got to jump through my hoops. And then there's 12 other people behind me with the same power. So where does that go? It doesn't go anywhere good. And we've added all these things under the claim of, oh, we're making things safer or whatever. Well, I'm a builder. I don't think stuff is that much safer. I see the decline in quality of building materials. You're going to have stuff falling down because the materials you've been using. Don't tell me about the, the safety features. It's like this stuff is actually worse. It's less safe because it's poorly constructed. And now it takes six months to get a simple simple building permit where I used to get them in like three hours. Like you drop the plans off for a simple house. They do their thing. And then you come back after lunch and you pick up the plans and you go start building the thing. It's like, that was like in the eighties. That wasn't like 1912. It wasn't that long ago. And so I think we've lost the vision of you got to keep things safe, but you've got to keep it stripped down and efficient. And we've lost virtually every sense of efficiency other than how do I make more profit? And so the profit motive is okay. It's good, but it's only one little part of the whole economy. So where do we start? We have to create opportunity by making it easier to do stuff for yourself and starting a business, making a living, um, et cetera. And so that's a good place to start, I think. And also just to recognize there's social change going on beneath economy. And eventually the social consequences can start affecting the economy where people go, this economy doesn't work for the bottom 90% anymore. And the top 10% have all the wealth and power, but that's not sustainable. And so then that will be a positive transformation, but it's going to be difficult for the top 10% to let go. Yeah, no, that's what I was thinking. I mean, you're exactly right. Everything is so complicated and skewed. Well, I tell you what, that was a good summary. I appreciate what you said, Charles. I mean, and it's good to have these conversations because I guess, and maybe I'll just add one last thought maybe you could comment on, but I do see in my little circle, whether it's clients or just people I kind of consider members of my personal tribe, I suppose you could say, that are seeking more than whatever they thought their life is supposed to be about. A good example, and this kind of may not be good for some, but I have a buddy of mine, he runs a CrossFit gym in Long Beach, and I met him originally in the church we were involved with, but he's starting a book club because he says just to spend time with people building their bodies and their physical health is great, but it's the same thing you're saying. It's one component. You can be the healthiest person in the world, but if your mind and your spirit isn't being challenged or developed, it's very short-sighted. You're one little piece of the puzzle, or however you want to word it. So I am seeing this trend of people that are starting to connect what they're seeing with what they're feeling and realizing that it's just, it doesn't fit. And that's encouraging because I think that's where the change starts. Certainly the people at the bottom in terms of the system, the way it rolls, are feeling that and have been for a long, long time. But when you start having people who could continue on and just sort of go on with things, the status quo, when they start having doubts, if that's the way to express it, 
That's a positive. I don't know about you. Are you seeing that? Because I feel like I am in different forms and fashions. There's some kind of collective awareness, if that's the way to put it, that seems to be kind of evolving here. Yeah, I think you've pinpointed something really important, Emerson, about the way that social change occurs. And it's that people start thinking about it in a different way and realizing that their well-being could be increased by doing something different than what they're doing now, really. And well-being is like, as you say, it's totality. It's not just how much money we have. And so once you reach a certain point of wealth or security, then that's when you start questioning things. I guess I'll end on this idea of the Pareto principle, which is that 80-20 rule. And it actually breaks down to the 4-64, right? You take 20% of 20% and 80% of 80%. And so they call it the vital few. In other words, once 4% of the population has a new understanding or a new set of goals, then they influence the next 20%. And then that 20% influences the 80%. And then you have stuff that used to be considered crazy or wild becomes normalized, right? And so that's what we saw with the civil rights movement and the environmental movement, stuff that seemed like fringe. Once 4% of the population gets it, then they'll influence the 20 and the 20 will influence the 80. And that's the same thing we saw, like how did the internet? Well, it started out with 4% getting on the internet and then pretty soon it was the 20. And then once 20% were on the internet, then it quickly went to the 80% and then it became ubiquitous. So I think the things you're talking about are exciting and interesting because once that number of people reaches 4%, then you're going to start influencing the entire society for the better. No, that's great. God, I tell you what, we got a, committing you to another conversation because there's so much more I feel like we could talk about. But I want you to know, first of all, Charles, I want to thank you for your time. And I really, like I said, I'm just thankful I found your writing because I keep bringing it back to the financial because that's where it started. But I'm a better person today because of the different inputs I'm getting. And I think that's the thing is just broadening out where you're getting information and who you're talking to and views. Um, it's like you said, it's a willingness to be open-minded and challenging everything. And that's scary for a lot. And I lived a life many years, as I'm sure maybe you did at some point. Maybe not, though. I don't know. You seem like you've been a free thinker for a while, but there's a safety in surrounding yourself with everybody who thinks the same way. But when you start all of a sudden broadening out, and I mean, Tom Luongo, I laugh because he puts out very good geopolitical information and he says he's a goat farmer. I mean, that's one of his, part of his bio, he's a goat farmer. But your views, you're over in Hawaii, you know, enjoying yourself. And why is some guy at JP Morgan or some other firm who's got a bunch of credentials, why is their opinion or view any more valid than anybody else's? And then you start realizing, no, not only is it not more valid, I'm probably getting myself in trouble here, but it's actually controlled. You mentioned something earlier, and I know I'm going off and I just should really let this finish for now, but there's an element of the status quo is you hang on to power, you hang on to control. And so there's an incentive to keep it going. And I literally, my mind opened three years ago, I was on a conference call with one of these money management firms and they were just coming off with these recommendations right as COVID was becoming the permanent lockdown that just made no sense. I mean, I'm a natural contrarian and I'm not afraid to go left when everybody's going right. <laughs> but I mean, it was like out of left field. And that's when all of a sudden the light bulb I'm on. I'm like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And then I started digging and then I learned about World Economic Forum and all these agendas and all the rest of this stuff. And it was like, holy cow. And then all of a sudden I noticed everybody's website was the same, different colors, but the same information. <laughs> no, really, this was like a revelation. And Thankfully, I'm grateful it came when it did because I was just kind of marching along step with everybody else. And it sort of aligned with this whole shift that we're going on now, at least currently. So anyhow, just thanks again. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to another conversation. So thank you for joining me on Upthinking Finance. Thank you, Emerson. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. 
Janus and Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.